Today I have the privilege of talking with Mark Ramsland. Mark is a criminal lawyer. Mark was born in Sydney at Manly Hospital, actually the same hospital that I was born in, but raised in Newcastle. Mark attended Macquarie University and was admitted into practice in 1992. He has worked in Newcastle since 1995, and in 1996, Mark opened his own firm. Mark has had 25 years' experience in litigation, principally in criminal law. He has experience in all areas of criminal law, ranging from the most serious offences to even some minor traffic offences. He has appeared extensively in the local court district, Supreme Courts. In addition to strictly criminal matters, he's also had extensive experience with the New South Wales Crime Commission and other quasi-criminal prosecutions. Mark is married to Annette. They have two children and spends most of his free time with family and friends, enjoying heavy metal music, weight training and being an avid Sea Eagle supporter. Hi, Mark, and welcome to our episode this afternoon of uh, I Decided. Thanks so much for being a part of, of this, this time and this conversation this afternoon. It's just great to have you aboard. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it, Ian. So, Mark, I'd like to start each interview just with a, with a conversation around wh- when was the first time you had a bit of a glimpse of inspiration? When did it come to you to believe in representing people charged with criminal offences in court? When did it move from just a bit of an idea you had and kind of this little pondering, yeah, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a go at this? Uh, well, it was when I was in early high school. I used to, my parents used to love watching the ABC and to such an extent we never really got to look at the um, commercial channels. Back then we only had 7, 9 and 10, I think, the uh-huh. ABC, and my parents used to love the ABC. So we'd watch that all every night and um, there was a show called Rumpole of the Bailey a very um, popular show and I, I just loved that show and I just fell in love with the idea that you could um, uh, be presented with this problem that you were trying to solve um, uh, in a courtroom and in, in doing so help a person who is unable to help themselves uh, who is charged with some kind of criminal offence so I got enamoured with that and of course that was a, a fiction, but I started reading as a young teenager all sorts of books about the law um, and ended up just, I think, in my year nine or ten, I just decided I would be a criminal lawyer. And basically that's that's worked itself out and I've never done anything else. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's how, that's how it started. And I've never really thought of doing anything else uh, in a serious way. So, Mark, who was the first person that you shared the idea with about becoming a criminal lawyer? What, what advice did they give you? I, I think I shared it with my parents because I told them that um, I wanted to go to law school and I finished year 11 and 12. I knew that to do that back then it was quite difficult because only three universities in New South Wales had a law degree. Mm-hmm. That's in the mid '80s, um, and they were all located in Sydney. And my parents were very um, happy with that. They, they're both academics, so they were quite happy to see me planning to go into university life. But of course, their concept of what law, the study of law, might be, really was coloured a little bit by their academic background. So 
the advice they gave me was just just to work hard and get get there. So that in terms of HSC, I knew I had to get a very good mark to get into one of the universities, and I worked towards doing that. Managed to do that, so I was lucky to get into Macquarie Uni, where I went and studied. And it was a bit by bit because you know the studying law, you have to do a double degree. You can't do one degree. You have to do to choose arts or science or or a Bachelor of Economics or some other degree as well. So I chose arts. But yeah, I, I, my parents were probably the first people I, who encouraged me in that way. And of course, doing law carries with it the prospect of getting a job. <laughs> so they were quite excited that having done a degree, I'd probably be able to get a job. Most parents are pretty excited about their children <laughs> choosing a career where a job's possible at the end. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, at the end of year 12, of course, I was in a well-known rock band in Newcastle and I did right. think for a while I would just stay with that. But seeing the way those guys have actually worked out, I'm very grateful I made the move to university life. What was the name of the band? Well, it, it later became the Screaming Jets. So I was in one of the two bands that joined together to form the Screaming Jets. And, of course, they probably were would have been more successful. Well, sorry, would have been less successful if I'd remained in the band. But... Um, you know, the way that's worked out for some of them hasn't been as as um, financially stable as they probably would have hoped yeah. given, you know, that, that period in the late 80s and early 90s. There was a lot of uh, use and abuse of young popular rock bands by the various record labels. So yeah. they didn't make much money financially out of that uh, foray into music. And what instrument is your passion? Oh, well, I play guitar and sing. So mm-hmm. I still love singing. I don't play much guitar anymore, but I still love singing. And if you see me in church, I'd be the loudest bloke to sing in the church. So I, I still <laughs> love singing. You're belting it out. Yeah. So you studied at Macquarie University in Sydney. And, yes. Uh, and you're a Newcastle boy at heart. Yes. Looking forward to, to making the road back to Newcastle. As many, many friends have told me, the only good thing about Sydney is it's got a road to Newcastle. It wasn't quite like that. I, I was born in Manly and my oh. parents are from Sydney, or having met in Sydney. Right. Um, but my father, who was an academic, moved around a fair bit and eventually became um, you know, Professor of History at Newcastle University. So we settled here when I was in high school. Okay. Um, so Sydney wasn't foreign to me. And to be honest with you, when I left uh, Newcastle in 1987, I really didn't want to come back. <laughs> But as you say, all roads lead back to Newcastle and eventually we did. And I, I found this place to be a great place to bring up a family and yeah. uh, to have a career that I I wanted to have. So I think it gives the balance still today that uh, of, a, you know, a competitive working life where you have a metropolis rather than a country town, but also a lot of the benefits of a country town. So uh, yes. we've loved our time in Newcastle since we've been here for over 20 years now. Yeah, it's it's an awesome place to live. It's a uh, it's a place that gets into your heart, not just uh, into your head. That's right. And when Manly lost the famous 1997 grand final to the Newcastle Knights, I didn't shed too much of a tear because it was such a great day for the town. I remember yeah. it well, travelling into the city to have all the people cheering for the bus that was returning from the. the the cricket ground or the Sydney Football Stadium, wherever it was played back then. Great time for the city, which as I recall, was in the doldrums over after um, after the uh, a couple of the big big companies had shut down. Uh, yeah, well, so, it was yeah. in 
in the latter times of BHP and there was a bit of I think they shut the year before or something yeah. like that. So yeah. It was a time that the Newcastle really did need a morale boost and that, that came at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's something I actually I didn't know. I was born in Manly Hospital too, so I heralded oh, yeah. from, that, from that neck of the woods. That's why you look ago. so intelligent. <laughs> it could be. So moving to, to Newcastle, you found a role with someone in the area up here and worked with them for some time? Yeah, so when I graduated, I, I did some work in Sydney, then moved to a country uh, practice in Port Macquarie for a little while. Uh, I got married at that time, and then uh, we there was an opportunity with a a well-known firm in Newcastle called Baker Love mm-hmm. uh, to start uh, to be in their commercial section. And, of course, I had no desire to be a commercial lawyer, but I did have a desire to leave my current employment. So we moved back to Newcastle. I started working commercial law, uh, leasing, conveyancing businesses, uh, and I was very lucky that my first secretary, who was a girl who was only 19 years of age, knew far more about that area of law than I did so I got her to help me with it as I learnt how to do uh, commercial law um, but that was my yeah my first job in Newcastle and I and at that time I, you know I, I was married and I think we had a mortgage and our our son was probably six months old about that time so mm-hmm. uh, it was a good time but uh, it was challenging because it wasn't the law it wasn't the practice that I really wanted to be involved mm-hmm. in yeah, you still had this 12-year-old passion inspired by old Rumpole sitting in your That's heart and yep. wanting to be expressed. And So when did you make that transition? You know, when did you move? Well, um, it was a bit fortuitous, really. I was, uh, as I said, the commercial lawyer in the Newcastle branch of Baker Love, and there was another lawyer there who shall remain nameless but was caught diddling the firm, and he, he'd been doing criminal law. So he had basically was up and left very quickly. And all these criminal matters remained, you know, waiting for someone to help them with it. And because none of the other partners or lawyers in the firm knew anything about criminal law, I put my hand up to do those things. So I became this, strangely enough, a dual practitioner doing conveyancing by day and criminal law by night. And eventually, you know, basically started doing a lot of criminal matters myself in all the courts in Newcastle. That's how that evolved. And it was, uh, it was just a, a, a bit of good luck, but also that I was, I was really ready to take on any type of court work. And I, I liked other courts as well. I did family court work. I did, uh, back then there was a workers' compensation court. And I did some advocacy in those courts, but um, my real passion was criminal law. So that afforded me the opportunity to be in court a lot. So then... Uh, from Baker Love and, and employment, uh, considering self-employment, considering opening your own practice, and tell me about the, yeah. the steps that led to that. Well, I, like I was almost forced into that because there was a upheaval in that firm, and there was a strong suggestion I would move out to the Charlestown practice, which was doing a lot better, I think, in terms of financially, um, and that would require me to basically revert back to doing commercial stuff. There was an opportunity to buy into the practice at a, at a in a in a short period of time, but the cost in doing that was fairly. Well, back then it was a lot of money, and I just thought to myself, why not have a go and set up my own practice? I could use one tenth of the money that I would need to buy into this practice, 
to set up my own. And so that's what I did. And it was done in a fairly, you know, within a couple of weeks. And I ended up in a tiny room down at what's called the TNG building, where many sole practitioners start in the TNG building in Newcastle and just start kicked it off. Was I there remember, some... I think, the first, sorry, the, the first day I opened my office, I had my baby son on the desk, I had a single desk, <laughs> an old computer, old dot matrix printer. Uh, and I remember thinking, I've got a big mortgage and my wife's not working and this is a real risk. But, yep. you know, um, there's no reward without risk. And I think as it's turned out, it, it really was a turning point in my career because I not only had was starting to do the work I loved, but also there was, I could see pecuniary reasons to be doing the work I loved mm. rather than being on a fixed wage for a firm. Who demanded, you know, a lot of lot of work and a lot of money to come in, and I only saw a very small portion of that. So, yeah, I was starting to see that there was a capacity to not only serve my family well financially, but also being able to do the things that I really wanted to do, which is to help people charged with criminal offences. So, at your decided moment caused the inspiration to start a business. You launched the business, and you yep. kicked off and. Tell me about those early years in business and, and some of the challenges you had to face. Well, it was hard because I was only a 26-year-old lawyer and I was representing you know, some hardened criminals who had more experience in court than I had. Some guys, I mean, one of my first cases was an armed robbery case. The guy was in his 40s and, and I, I don't know what he thought about his young lawyer who had just been assigned to his case by the Legal Aid Commission because uh, I've done a lot of work for Legal Aid over the years. They have retained me to do some do, do matters. And, um, and uh, I don't know how, how he thought I was able to help him. But So that, that was a challenge, being young. Uh, the other challenge was, of course, winning the work because I've never advertised. And back, back in the 80s, advertising was the no-no for lawyers. It's since changed. And all, all the work I got would be referral work or word of mouth. So, so there was a commitment then. I had to do a good job for people because otherwise you couldn't, wouldn't get anyone back. I had this view, whether it's misplaced or not, that if you do a good job for someone, they'll tell one person. If you do a bad job, they'll tell 10. So the, the commitment was to, to try and do my best for every client I had in the hope, not only that, that I'd help them, but they'd also tell, tell others because that was the only way I could get work. It was word of mouth. So I had that, I had that determination to be a good lawyer for, you know, from a very early time, mainly because if I wasn't, I knew I'd go out of business. Uh, there's so many businesses like that that are constantly reliant on their reputation. But in your business, particularly where you've got less freedom in, in how you solicit business and how you, you know, mm. market and advertise your businesses, it's even a, a more critical sphere to build that reputation strong. Well, I think that's right. And it's also another aspect. It's not only do you have to win the favour of clients who are charged with offences, you have to win the favour of the courts. And you, you want judges and magistrates to think well of you because it's not that you get an easier ride, but you certainly need to establish a reputation to have any argument that you might want to put forward on behalf of a client accepted. And so those with bad reputations, and I see it all the time today, those with bad reputations who are not, or who are inexperienced or ill-prepared or rude, and there's a, variety of, there's a variety of things you need to do in court to get your 
voice heard. If you don't do those things right as well, it doesn't matter how many clients you have, you're not going to, to achieve too well. So there's that other aspect that you need to be regarded highly, reasonably highly by the what we call the bench. So the so the barrister, the, uh, the, the judges and the magistrates who might make decisions about your case. So but there's that aspect too. And I learned that very early on from a couple of friends I made who were barristers in Newcastle who offered some help, assistance to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of young lawyers make, they think they can rule the world, but they don't then listen to advice from those who are more experienced. And uh, I very quickly learned the best law book is the phone book. I would ring people about cases that come, came my way where I really didn't know how to handle them. Instead of looking up a law book or trying to read about it, I'd ring people who had the reputation and knowledge that could help me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've always believed that and I, I advise people all the time now, you know, ring someone up who knows, verify what they say, but ring someone up who knows to get some advice about how to run a case. What do you think are some of the key qualities in representing a client well? Yeah, so look, I, I currently do really serious crime. Um, we've got a murder trial starting next week. I, I do. I've done about three or four murders this year. Uh, difficult sexual assaults, um, drug matters. Um, there are a number of things that I have stuck to, and I pretty much tried to be unwavering in this. Uh, the first thing you need to make, you actually need to make a personal. I, I, not all lawyers believe this, but I, I believe it firmly. You need to make a personal connection with the client. Um, and not regard that person as as a scumbag or a you know someone without any redeeming features or and I think there's always this kind of view in the press that you know people charged with crime are somehow less human than you or I might be, but they're not. Most people who are charged with serious crimes have come from very challenging backgrounds that I've never experienced in my life. So there's this idea, and I, I think it's it's true, that if you can establish a personal connection with your clients in criminal law, win their trust by being honest with them, um, that's the first step. And uh, not only does it win you the work, in other words, they trust you, but it also shows them that they're more valuable than maybe anyone has ever showed value towards them in the past. Uh-huh. Um, I've had plenty of guys that, are stunned when you tell them that they've got, you know, a capacity for wisdom or they're able to change or, you know, that the world isn't bleak because they have an ability to rise above their circumstances. And many, and it's usually young men that I handle, many young men have never heard things like that because of their background. Uh And so that's really the key thing I've held on for a long time. Um, but people are valuable, no matter what they've done or what they're said to have been done. There's also always the capacity to come back from it. Uh, a lot of my friends don't share that view. Yeah, some people are more quick to judge than listen. So, so yeah. what are some of the qualities you've found on the other side? So the, they're the qualities of, of uh, best helping your client. But what are mm. the qualities that you need in in leading a conversation with a judge and leading the the proceeding? that's happening in, in defence? Yeah, well, I think um, there's a, maybe people who watch Rumpole or other shows on television have this view of what criminal law is like. There's two predominant um, 
misconceptions. The first is that it's about trickery. It's about somehow grabbing hold of some law and manipulating it so you get your client off. And that is a misconception. Although that happens occasionally, it is rare. Um, And so it's not about trickery. It's about preparation. And you need to know your case well. You need to know the law well. You need to know the bench well. So you need to appraise yourself of the attitudes of the judge or magistrate you might be before. That's sometimes by experience, other times by just simply researching that. Uh, So you need preparation. And the other thing, along with preparation, it's not so much what you see in court that makes the difference. It's what you do behind the scenes that makes the difference. Most of the time, at least 90% of the time, the outcome is a fairly calculated and uh, estimable one. We can estimate what someone's going to get uh, in terms of a penalty or whether the chances of being found not guilty. And that's all based upon preparation, based upon negotiation with the prosecution. It's based upon the things people don't see. So, you know, people have often said, gee, you charge a lot, but you didn't say much. And But uh, I say it's, it might be 15 minutes in court, but it's 15 years you know, preparation and experience. So it's a lot of it's to do with behind the scenes things that people don't see. Have you ever had a, a court situation go completely different to what you hoped it might? And and how did you how did you handle that? I've had a lot. I mean, we hope to win many cases which we lose. Uh, I think the first case I won as a young solicitor, I was stunned because I, I actually wasn't very good, but I was in the workers' compensation court and I was acting for an insurer who was trying to deny liability towards an injured worker. I was cross-examining the injured worker and I I said to him, uh, sir, where can you lift your arm now that you've injured? And he kind of had this pained look on his face and raised his arm up about, you know, towards his shoulder level. Uh, You can't get it above there? No, it's very painful, yes. And the next question, I said, well, where did you used to be able to put your arm to? And he just shot his arm straight up above his head. And, of course, (laughs) I didn't expect him to actually do that. But in doing that, he lost his own case because he showed himself to be a liar. And that's one of the things I really have learned a lot in court, that it's very hard to maintain a lie. You have to remember the lie where you never have to remember the truth. The truth is always available to you naturally. So unexpected things happen that way. I mean, I've been attacked physically by a person I've cross-examined, um, uh, this lady, I was challenging her on her evidence. She jumped out of the, the witness box and chased, <laughs> ran at me and tried to crash tackle me in the, as I'm asking questions. So that's another case we won. But you know, look, it happens quite a lot, often dis- with disappointments because in jury trials, you've got 12 people and you don't know what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um where you think you might have a chance in a case, you, you may lose. But, you know, there's always an expectation that you, you may lose. It, it's, uh, it's not black and white. You can't, you know, it's not like mathematics. Mm-hmm. So um, you're trying to convince 12 people in a jury trial of a proposition. And some of that proposition may, in fact, be entirely ridiculous because of the instructions that your client gives you. But other times you there are good chances to win and, and you win. So... Um, I've been surprised many times, disappointed many times, and also elated by some of the decisions we've got, um, which were deserving decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lady a couple of years ago who was supposed to be injecting urine into her 
child to make the child sick. And it was really a case where she was being persecuted by the by the hospitals who didn't have any any answer as to why this child was getting sick and formulated the wrong view that she was making her child sick deliberately. And to win that case was really gratifying, knowing mm-hmm. and believing that she was innocent of that offence and had been set up, in effect. How do you overcome discouragement and disappointment? Well, it's good to come home to reality. <laughs> uh, sometimes you lose a case and you think you can just wallow in it for a while, but I come home and there are things I have to do at home. I might be mm-hmm. cooking dinner that night or my son might have a question about, you know, his, his degree, his, what is going on in his life, or we've got to go for a walk, a bit of exercise. I think getting back to normal very quickly is a way to deal with it. I think in law, after a while, you realise if you've done your best, you've just got to accept that you're not the judge or the jury and uh, that uh, if there is a mistake made, someone will take it on appeal. But there have been times I have, I have behaved and, and thought badly in a case where I've lost. And I, I hope to have learned from those things. But, yeah, look, it's a learning process. Um, <laughs> I can't pretend that I always behave the best when I lose something. What difference do you think you've made just uh, in, in community around there? Do you, do you feel like, you know, this, this chosen path that you've been on has made a difference to your life and to others as well? I, I believe so. And, and one of the things that as, a, as I have um, grown as a lawyer and, learn, and doing individual cases, I've realised that um, there is more I can do with the influence I have now uh, to help people who are in trouble with the law. And so I've, I'm, I'm a founder of one of uh, Newcastle's um, drug and rehabilitation clinics. I've promoted drug and alcohol rehabilitation. And uh, by and large, most crimes that I see that are violent crimes have with them a combination of drugs and alcohol. It would be rare that I would see a case where it's just a bad person has done something. Most of the time, drugs, particularly methamphetamine, which is a, is a terrible drug, has contributed in some way to the violence. And so, and I think you'll find this is going to be more prevalent in the way we deal with people charged with serious crime like this, that there'll be an increasing emphasis on not only punishment, but also rehabilitation. So I've been able to do, because of my influence with the courts and because of my having a lot of cases over the years, I've been able to be part of this kind of movement in Newcastle towards seeing people rehabilitated as well as punished. That's, that's great, Mark. What's one of the greatest challenges you've had to overcome in, in personal or business life? Well, when I was 30, I had... Uh, I had this fledgling, fledgling business. I'd been, I think, business for two years or, I'm sorry, five years or thereabouts. It was growing. I had a number of solicitors working for me. I had support staff. We were doing some really good work. So my business had actually grown fairly rapidly and flourished. And I started to get quite ill. And I thought it was simply um, a result of stress. So I was having pains in the stomach and issues uh, relating to, you know, poor physical health. But as it turned out, I had bowel cancer. And so um, that was a challenge because I had some, you know, basically to stop working, had a number of serious operations and 
um, the recovery associated with having most of my bowel removed and some other areas of my stomach removed in, in as I said, a series of operations. And the prospects that I was given initially on diagnosis were very poor. So I was 31 with a big mortgage, two kids. My daughter was probably five months old. My son was four years old. Uh, Annette, who was not working at the time, just at home being a home mum, that was a big challenge. That's huge. And look, on reflection, it was one of the best times of my life. A couple of reasons for that. One is that after about a month in hospital, you know, I'd wanted to know what was going on with my business. And I found that the business was actually working okay. It was going okay. pretty well. So the solicitors that were working for me kept working. The support staff were really committed to it. And I realised then that the that I'd done something, I think, within my business setting to give people a sense of purpose even when the boss wasn't around. I, to my shame, when I was working for others, I didn't have that same view. When the boss wasn't around, I tend to put my tools down and not, not work as hard. So there must have been something in the way that I you know, managed to develop this business that enabled those who were working for me to keep working and, and to do a good job. So that, that was gratifying. That was, um, that was amazingly gratifying, actually, because I knew I could spend some time at home and recover. The second thing is, and this is probably the most significant thing that's ever happened to me in that, my life, I, I, you know, had a God moment and I made a commitment to the Christian faith and I've held on to that ever since and I've grown in that ever since. Even though I was, you know, it was not looking good in terms of mortality and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a pleasant time in terms of just recovery and pain and I mean, I, you know, you can't see me on this podcast, but I'm about 110 kilos, and I, I shrunk down to about 55 kilos at one point, and I, I was on the verge of death, and I could feel it. But in saying that, it was a really sweet time as well because I, I had this new relationship with God, and I, and I've never let go of that. So uh, that was a big turning point, and it was probably the biggest turning point in my life. And strangely enough, it was during the hardest time in my life. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, tragedy and the hard times, the hardest times of our life bring out something inside of us that uh, we don't find when times are good. And yeah, I agree. I agree with that 100%. And I think during this period of coronavirus, many of my colleagues have virtually shut the door, their doors or they've shrunk away from the challenges and and it has been tough, mm-hmm. but I believe that in all circumstances, an opportunity is available to those who are looking for it. I'm, I'm really excited that my firm is coming through this period better than it was beforehand. We're not just marching time. We're, we're, we're moving forward. We're changing techniques of the way we do things. We're responding to the demands, I think, in a great way of coronavirus, but both this time and last year when we had the initial shutdown. Yes. And um, I really do think if hard times happen, you need to be able to look at it strategically and find out where the opportunities are. The opportunities to, you know, move ahead financially, move ahead professionally, move ahead relationally. You know, and it, I, I don't doubt it's been a tough time for everyone and more tough for others than me. I, I understand that. But this is a time where people in business or people with careers need to seriously look about how they do things. And, um, that time when I was sick 20 years ago, 
gave me this kind of idea that in difficult times, there's always an opportunity. I do believe that. There's always an opportunity. Oh, yeah. And look, one of the key things I share with my clients is never miss a message of a crisis. So any crisis that we have in our life, that, that there's, a, there's a point of something new to learn and, and a new paradigm to, to absorb into life and a new way of looking at things and a, a new method to, to explore. So it's a, it's a really mm. powerful time. So, so Mark, where are you up to now? What, what's the sense of accomplishment if you look back across how business has gone so far and you know, where's the, the victory that you, you see and, uh, and what, what are you looking at now into the future? Well, I've been in business now for about 25 years. Um, uh, we've had a lot of ups and downs. I, I can't pretend I've been, during that period, a, a wonderful businessman. I think I've become a better lawyer over time because um, I've always focused on that aspect. But one of the things I would say to young and up-and-coming lawyers is it's not all about what you know as a lawyer. You need to have, you need to develop yourself in terms of marketing, in terms of um, relational ability with clients, in terms of networking. I, I never did that at all well. But that, that's really part of how you are able to establish, establish yourself and do the things you, you love doing. I still love representing people in court, but I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't have a business to be able to do it with and, and the foundations of it. And um, I'm still learning every day about the business foundations. And um, But at this point in my life, I'm actually thinking of a shift somewhere. I don't know how it's going to look. I have some plans about that, but I'm thinking of uh, perhaps expanding in a more macro way. I talked a little bit about what I've been doing with rehabs uh, and I, and. I'm thinking of taking a bit of focus off the individual cases into, into those bigger areas of, you know, uh, that help help more people than just the uh -huh. individual that's charged with an offence. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next 10 years. I feel yeah. energised about that aspect. So while we wait to the next chapter of uh, Mark Ramplan to, to appear, <laughs> you know, there's a question I, li I, I like to ask at the end yeah. of each of our conversations, and it's, one day your life is going to be reduced to a sentence, maybe a paragraph. And what would you like that, that sentence or paragraph to say? You know, Ian, I have thought about this. And I just have to give a little background to why I'm thinking about this because I was in Port Macquarie a while back and we were walking, for some reason, we were walking through a graveyard. There was nothing morbid about it. We were just going on a walk and I'm just noticing all the, all the, you know, the, the epithets on tombstones, the things that were said about people, you know, wonderful grandfather, wonderful father. There was a few unusual ones, like uh, there was one I remember that you couldn't miss a 10-pin bowling game or something. There's some, something, obviously, this gentleman who deceased really loved doing was 10-pin bowling. But I, I wouldn't like something like that on my tombstone. Uh, and the other thing, I, I mean, I understand that, you know, I think only it's really only your family who remember you in in a two generations time. The most famous people are often forgotten in, in a two generations. I the other day I was looking at the most famous movie actor in 1980 was Burt Reynolds. My, most of my staff wouldn't know who Burt Reynolds was. That's true. So it doesn't. <laughs> certainly, they don't know who John Wayne was, and he was a megastar back in the 50s and 60s. He was probably the most singularly most known man in the Western world in some ways. Um, a veteran of 140 movies. 
<laughs> something like that that you know yeah. you, you ask a 20 year old today who John Wayne is they wouldn't have a clue yeah. um, so I think with that perspective in mind I, I don't think it's the people I've acted for or helped over the years that will actually remember me or that, that I've made a legacy with I think that the legacy and I hope this to be true is my family that my wife and my kids would would have you know have a have a view about me that I've helped them grow and I've helped them develop and I've helped them move into business or whatever they're moving into in life. Um, so again, I, I I really don't know what I'd want to be my one liner, but it probably wouldn't be about law, even though I love law and I love the practice of law. It'd probably be about something to do with me being a husband and father, and those are the things ultimately that I really cherish: family. And, time with my kids and time with my wife. And um, I believe I have made a difference in law and I, I believe I still will. But ultimately, it's a, it's probably about the family aspects that I'd like to be remembered for. Well, observing your life now for many years, you're a great dad and you're a good husband. And as a team, you're a good team as a family. And I really appreciate this uh, this time together. And, and I really thank you for the way you serve our community. Uh, often with the unloved and the unwanted and the, the unrecognised, you elevate them and you, you recognise them and you honour them and you always serve them the best you possibly can. So from community, we thank you for, for what you do and we thank you that yeah. you do what you do. And I know that you do genuinely make a living, but you also make a huge difference. So, thank you. Uh, Appreciate it. Thanks for your time today, Mark. And uh, Thank you very much. Look forward to catching up when we're out of this COVID craziness. Yeah, right. Thank you.